On this episode of the Peter Panda Podcast, we get the inside story of how two brothers from Texas started and built one of today's most iconic outdoor brands, Yeti Coolers. Join me as I sit down with my good friend and Yeti co-founder, Ryan Cedars. Ryan walks us through the incredible story on how these guys went from simply wanting to make a better cooler to building what's today a $3.9 billion publicly traded household brand. This story has it all. From young, hardworking American entrepreneurs, to groundbreaking new standards for outdoor products, to even a murder. That's right, murder. Sit back and get ready for a story you will not soon forget. Yeah, they're shipping the three right away, and then the, the silver one, they're shipping um, whenever it's ready. Maybe mid-August, according to Tim. I wonder how many silver ones that he's made. I, I don't know make. if that's part of the one in 30-something. Or if it's its own line. Yeah, I don't know. Well, it's like getting custom-made, so it's got to be better more limited. Better make sure off. At least on vibrate. Your phone rings more than any human I know. Really? Yeah, and uh, I do have a lot of respect. You always pick up your phone calls. Yeah, I do usually. Which I respect and enjoy when I'm not with you and I'm the one calling. Mm-hmm. But when I'm with you, it's less enjoyable. Mm-hmm. I understand. Okay. How many miles did we end up hiking today? Uh, like 10.6. You got to share. You should screenshot that Garmin. Yep. Uh, report and share that with me i'll do it right now do you have uh the one from the other day saves too i do hey if if you don't have proof of it if you don't have photos in a garmin report you didn't do it yep so we hiked it was over 10 miles wasn't it it's 10.6 i think um and does it give you the vertical too let's see um 10.54 miles um it'll give you stairs um is a stair a foot uh no, it's like staircase. Okay. Um Well I how many stairs are in I don't know. So here's some stuff. Four hours forty eight minutes, ten point five four, calories burned nineteen sixty, pace twenty seven minutes per mile, but we stopped up at the top for a while. Elevation yeah. gain in feet was about three thousand. And it said more on the deal. I think it's fair to say we both had 35 pounds on our back. Yeah. Climbed 3,000 feet in the Grand Tetons today. And yeah. uh, when we when we took off from the house this morning, it was 45 degrees. And when we got back to the truck after the hike, what was it, 85? Yes, it got hot quick. 85 degrees. I felt bad for all the people I saw going up the trail at the end. Yeah. Because half of them look like they don't know what they're getting into. Mm-hmm. And a, a smaller fraction of them look like they're dying, and they they ask you, "How close are we? Does it get better? Send help." Yeah. And uh, it was nice. I, I felt good the whole way, and my boots felt great. And tell uh, me about your boots. Well, I have the Chenay's Granite Pro, which is this is my second pair. Um, and uh, I retired my first pair, and I'm, this is brand new pair. Basically, I'm just breaking them in right now. And what? That's an eight inch, eight inch leather mountain boot. Eight uh, we inch need tall. To look, it's I can't remember if it's eight or nine. I haven't looked at that in a while, but it's their stiffest 
um, you know, kind of mountain boot they make. Mm-hmm. And so, and it's uninsulated, which I Perfect prefer. for hot summer hiking and right. August sheep hunts. Yep. Which both of us get to go on this year. I'm excited about that for both of us. So, sitting here with my good friend Ryan Cedars, and we are in beautiful Jackson Hole, Wyoming. It's back to the beautiful part of the day when it's not scorching hot and the wind's blowing. Looking out the window, there's a bunch of quaking aspens. It's real beautiful and comfortable. But when it's 85 plus, 90 degrees, and uh, you're surrounded by tourists and stuff, it's hard to see the beautiful parts of Jackson. Yeah, I agree. We're back to the good stuff right now. So we're both getting ready for sheep season, hanging out in Jackson right now, going on some big hikes, organizing gear, getting boots ready, getting packs dialed, um, and having a good time. You are headed to British Columbia for your second stone sheep hunt. That's correct. Tell me where you're going. So uh, uh, Folding Mountain, Blair and Rebecca Miller, I, I went with them in 2018. Um they had a cancellation that year, and I was able to book it and had a great hunt. Got to hunt with uh, Blair's younger brother, Scott, and uh, and so we had a really good hunt. I think we found a nine-and-a-half-year-old ram uh, and uh, just had a great time with everybody there. I love that story. That's a, that's another podcast we got to do, just talking sheep hunts, but I love this, that, how all that happened, how you guys kind of ping-ponged back and forth across that valley. Yeah. And the ram ended up being right ab- right behind you, That's and you didn't right. even know it. That happens sometimes, and you don't know it until you get a different angle on stuff. Yep, so we're, I'm headed back there uh, on my second stone sheep hunt and looking forward to it. The only thing I'm not looking forward to is the travel to Canada. With The last time I went, they had some pretty rough COVID restrictions. Yeah, I just did, I just did my first trip to Canada since COVID in April, yep. and it was different. Yeah, and then the travel time in general to get up there is pretty rough. But anyway, but once you get there, it's a lot of fun and looking forward to seeing some beautiful country. Yeah, and some familiar faces. You got the same guide again, yep. right? Yeah, we got Scott Scott Miller again. You've been on some incredible sheep hunts and all have been successful. Um, and we were talking about this yesterday. How I'm I hope that you have a a successful but a challenging hunt. Yeah, I, I, all my sheep hunts have been fairly quick, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I've never been, like, pushed to full 14 days, you know, and I don't know right. how mental, you know, obviously I think I can handle it um, from a physical side. I'm just not mentally, I'm not sure. I've never been weathered in for three or four days. You know, I've never had anything real tough other than the physical side of it, but I, I wonder about a 14-day, you know, kind of grinder, how, how I could handle that mentally, especially if there was some really bad weather that kept us in their tent for several days. That's right, man. The uh, You've heard it before. You've, you'll hear it again. You know, you can train physically as much as you want for sheep hunts, and it's obviously a good idea to be in good physical condition and be prepared. But that, that mental strength is such a real element to it, and particularly – when you find yourself in adverse situations and uncomfortable situations and bad weather and uh, doubt of the success of the hunt and when things get drawn out. So I hope your hunt is successful. And we joked this morning that every piece of trash we picked up, your sheep was going to grow one more inch. Yeah. (laughs) So we were being good stewards of the land, picking up all the trash we saw. 
Um, so I hope you kill a giant sheep, but I hope you get, I hope it's a grind for you. Yeah. Cause you've had, you got the sheep fever and now I want you to start testing your abilities to their limits. Well, we'll see. So that's a good, uh, segue into how you and I got to know each other. I got a call in, man, it was probably three years ago. No, it was in 2018 when I drew my first sheep tag in the toke in Alaska. It's four years. At least. I mean, it's. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's longer than I thought it had been. So you were, you had drawn a toke tag in Alaska with Lance Kronberger. That's correct. And you've got, you've got a guy that puts in for your tags all over the place. So you, it was a bit of a surprise to you, correct? It was, you know, I, um. I had seen a a book called Great Rams back in probably around 2002 or 2003 and I thought, you know what? I'm a, at the time I was a big whitetail hunter and you know I had friends going to Africa and stuff like that and I thought, you know, if I if I ever wanted to do something different than whitetail hunting, right. instead of going over to Africa or doing something crazy, I think that just sheep after looking through all the old black and white photos in this coffee table book it's like you know that's that looks like a lot of fun and challenging and and all that. So I, was it yeah. a combination of like wow that's a really interesting an- that looks like an interesting animal in an interesting place or was it was it the adventure that you saw behind the photo or a little bit of all that? I think it was a li- you know you know obviously the sheep the the animal and then just being in that country and. Being able to stay in North America, sure, you know, it's the travel's not quite as bad, sure, and um, and and so my thought was, it, you know, you know, probably about 2015, I had, you know, this guy named David started applying me for all these. I basically called him up on a friend's recommendation, and said, apply me for every Western sheep tag there is. Nice. Like, I don't don't care about elk, don't care about mule deer. Let's just start applying for all the sheep tags. That's <laughs> a boss move. Yeah, and so uh, when I drew this toke tag in Alaska for a doll sheep, um, I thought, you know, I'm mean, I'm gonna, you know, go on the hunt, and if I like it, well, then I'll try to do some Pursue more. It, yeah. yeah. And when I drew that, I was quail hunting when David called me and told me I drew the tag, and um, I weighed 207 pounds. I'm six foot tall. Did you really? Yeah, I weighed 207. I've never seen you that big. Well, I just finished up a, um, you know, long deer season. I usually gain about, you know, 10 to 20 pounds of deer season sitting Sitting around. Sitting there snacking and sitting still waiting for a big buck. Yeah, waiting for a whitetail to come out. It's hard uh, to burn calories. It is. And uh, so anyway, um, I decided that you know, pretty quickly it kind of scared me into getting in shape, which I needed anyway, which is a great side benefit of this sheep hunting. And, um, and so eventually, you know, with about two months left before my hunt season starts August 10th in Alaska. And, you know, within about two months of that, I figured out a system that worked for me for losing some weight. And I, I was hiking a lot in my new boots and the in the granite pros that I had at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> you know getting up to Colorado hiking, trying to get some elevation stuff like that, and I got down to from two hundred seven to one eighty five. Wow! And uh, that was kind of like my what I the most I ever need to weigh is one eighty five. You know, and so the most of the least, the most that's the most I you're should like. Ever. This is a really healthy spot. Yeah, for I to felt be at. great at yeah. 185, and 207 is definitely too heavy. And so, um, anyway, I, you know, I went on that toe hunt and had a well, we got to back yep, up from okay, that. Okay, so we 
you're you're new to sheep hunting you have yep. this once in a lifetime dull sheep tag mm-hmm. and you know you are you're new to the sheep hunting gear list yep and so you are a very detailed person and you started ironing out your personal gear list and finding what you needed and talking to the people that that you respected and trusted who had done this stuff before one of whom was our mutual friend Stephen Ernella. Sure. Which is where I came into the equation. I got a call in 2018 from Steve. And he said, Pete, my friend Ryan is going on his first sheep hunt, and I need you to help him get dialed in in his first Stone Glacier pack and make sure he has everything he needs for that backpack for a toke doll sheep hunt. Ten minutes later, I was on the phone with you. And before I got off the phone with Steve, he mentioned that you were Ryan Cedars, one of the co-founders of Yeti. And I was like, oh. For whatever's that, for whatever's that worth. And I was <laughs> like, well, you better not be carrying one of those big heavy coolers up there because that's not going to work so well. Mm-hmm. So you and I got to talking and um, had never met each other, but quickly became kind of distant uh, gear friends and yep. bounced gear ideas off each other. And, um, since that day, you've been, you liked that sheep hunt. You were successful and killed a beautiful doll sheep. And you've now have been on six sheep hunts going on your seventh. And I think it's just so awesome how passionate and how all in you are with it. Like everything you've done with your life. I think you're, you're very committed and passionate, uh, person. And the sheep hunting was no exception to that. So you've got, you've got the best sheep hunting gear and you love tweaking it and dialing it in from your boots to your backpack we were even in the backyard yesterday building your first diy fire kit we were right uh gobbing up cotton balls and petroleum jelly and lighting them on fire back you never seen that before had you i had not but it works really good weighs next to nothing and could save your damn life Mm -hmm. so i i like to think that i can contribute cool little cool little uh, fun facts like that and gear advice and training advice with you which is why we team up <clears throat> for things like we're doing right now getting ready for sheep season together so uh we're gonna have to we're gonna have to have a couple conversations about sheep hunting one we could talk forever about sheep hunting we usually do and then uh you're a very passionate whitetail and quail hunter yep across kansas oklahoma and texas that's correct and that's a whole nother conversation uh in and of itself so we will we will get you back on here and we'll talk deer and quail and sheep on another conversation sure but today we're going to dive into the really incredible story of uh you and your life and how you and your brother roy started a company that all of us now know today as yeti coolers so let's skip the childhood stuff and let's dive in let's go to ryan cedars in college okay where'd you go to college texas a&m wildlife biology degree you did yep wildlife biology so all along you you loved the outdoors you were oh yeah from the beginning yeah i was and, and I, father and was a big part of that he was yeah uh you know kind of grew up in the outdoor industry he owned a company called flexcoat that he started in 
77 and so we grew up going to trade shows with him and and seeing the fish and tackle industry stuff like that and tell tell me about Flexcoat. so flex coat it's a you know kind of a small family business and he sells all the epoxy coatings uh for fishing rod manufacturing and, and custom rod builders and then equipment for building fishing rods and uh so you know i grew up building fishing rods and anytime i needed extra money i would you know, middle school, high school, college, I would build fishing rods. So part of getting a wildlife biology degree was when I graduated from college, I knew I wanted to start my own rod company and be like a customer of my dad's. Cause I, so I that grew was up a dream from, from, from early, early on. on. Yeah. And so, you know, seeing, uh, rod companies like G Loomis, St. Croix, Sage, those were some of the ones I really looked up to. And they were all customers of your father. Yes. And I got to go visit some of those customers and see their factories and, and, and at the trade show, see their booths. And I was really exposed to a lot early on with the, you know, kind of owning your own business, seeing my dad and mother work in that business and, and, you know, kind of build my own rods and sell them just like that kid we just saw selling lemonade. lemonade yeah, we, out just, there. we just bought lemonade from a kid on the corner in the neighborhood. And let me just take a quick side note to tell you, if you see a kid selling lemonade, you pull your damn car over and buy a cup of lemonade. <laughs> you support young entrepreneurs every chance you get. Unless they're like teenagers trying to sell lemonade, then you tell yeah. them to go get a real job. Yeah. Um, so tell me what one more time, Flex... Flex coat. Flex coat. What exactly? It's an epoxy coating, okay. a clear, flexible coating. And in the mid seventies, there were they were using like var. My dad was a built custom rods. Okay. And they were using varnishes on rods, and and it, you know everything about the rods were pretty good that you could build at the time, except for the the coating that hold the the, the thread that holds on the guide that you wrap onto the guide. The varnishes wouldn't hold up over time, so mm. in a, 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 a clear, flexible epoxy um, really worked great, and he was the first one to come out with something like that. Pretty and, innovative. Yeah, and uh, and so anyway. Your father owns and operates that company today, doesn't he? Still today. Wow. Yeah, so that's great guy. 40-something years. Yeah, he's always fired up. Great and, cook and a, a bit of a comedian. Yeah. I really like your dad. He's pretty funny. All right, so you, you're influenced by the environment that you were brought up in you got your feet wet kind of in the outdoor industry you saw manufacturing as a young man yes and you loved fishing and hunting that's right maybe fishing even more at the time yeah i I was always you know my dad was a big fisherman but i you know from an early age i was a hunter and Mm -hmm. so even my fishing today is kind of based around sight casting and hunting looking for fish hunting for fish yeah yeah, and so I, I think it was just in my blood it, from a very early age, and uh, and so um, you know, kind of my you know now as I've gotten older, my kind of my my main passions are whitetail, quail, redfish, and tarpon. That's right, and sheep. And, yeah, and she, sheep I don't raid up there with the others because what? Let me tell you why. Whoa. I just I have ruffling feathers. Yeah, I know, but I just have not I have not dedicated the time that I have on those other right. four. And so yeah, I've gone on six sheep hunts, but um, you know, I've 
gotten lucky drawing a couple tags. I bought a couple tags. And, the uh, universe wants you to be a sheep hunter. That's right. The universe and, has, has handed you some not made, Hey, you worked for a lot of them, and you got lucky with a couple things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, drawing those tags. The yeah. universe wants you to go sheep hunting. That's right. And, and what I've really enjoyed about sheep hunting is the preparation side of it. Mm-hmm. More than any of the other activities is the preparation for sheep hunting. And... Not that you should need this, but the incentive to stay in a little bit better shape or in better shape so you can go do it. Oh, absolutely. And so if, it's enjoyable. Because if sheep hunting's part of your life, you, you're yeah. going to stay younger for a longer time. That toke hunt, had I not lost that 22 pounds before I left, I, I think it would have been a real beating. <laughs> it, it was a beating. It was a beating, but uh, it was, you know, I enjoyed it and it was a, a great feeling of accomplishment to You'd get a doll sheep. Never again. Yeah. yeah, you'd be like, that was miserable. Yeah, and uh, and so, you know, after that uh, hunt and having a good time and kind of outside of my comfort zone, well, I started looking into other sheep species in North America and booked a stone sheep right after that with Blair, where That's I'm going right. back to yeah. today, you know. This is this is going to keep happening. You and I are just going to keep getting sidetracked by talking about sheep. That's mm-hmm. okay. So, did you graduate from AM? I did. I graduated in December of 96 and Ooh. started my rod company, fishing rod company, in, uh, you know, early 97. You know, where I did full-time brand, a brand name is called Waterloo Rods. Waterloo Rods. Okay. So yeah. you're, f- you're freshly graduated. You're yeah. 22 years old or something. That sounds right. Yeah. And um, you, you know, you want to build your rods. You're staying in, you're in Texas. Where are you living in Texas? Yeah, I'm living in Texas, and, you know, I lived in a couple different places around Austin and out in Driftwood where my dad's company was and where I grew up. And I had my rod shop. He had a house located next door to him, mm-hmm. and then we had a building out back with where we could turn cork handles and, assemb- you know, and ream out pre-shaped cork handles, stuff like that, so where you could really go out and get dirty. So how many rods you make? Like- so I, always I was building a thousand to fifteen hundred rods a year. I always had one full time employee, and right I, out, right out the gate you were this was. Uh, yeah, I mean I just had a big enough you know like I'd already had some customers, and then I was building some real specialty bass rods. Okay. And uh, that kind of got me started. There was a guy uh, located not far from me that was a real good. Um, we call you know, call it a grass fisherman. He specialized in fishing the hydrilla for big bass. Oh, cool! And so my very first rod I started with, uh, that was a you know a you know a particular model was called a scrape rod, and that's what Terry Oldham called getting in a scrape of of these big bass in the nice. hydrilla. And so it required heavy lines like eighty pound test braided line and these real stiff rods, and you'd throw these ounce, ounce and a half jigs into the hydrilla mm-hmm. and just yank these bass out. He was a tournament fisherman. So it's a stiffer rod, super st- like a broomstick, but lightweight, so you could pitch these big. How jigs. long? They were seven foot three inches long. And how much were you charging for them? You know, I bet at the time in 97, I think that rod was probably selling for about $175. And were you selling them direct or through retailers? Both, mostly direct, but I had about 10 retailers. Oh, you did? In, yeah. In Texas, mostly? Mostly in Texas and mostly based around, you know, contacts I had through my dad or through Terry Oldham, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I started adding, I was, you know, I was a saltwater fisherman, so I had a lot of shallow water, you know, redfish and trout rods for um, you know, spinning and casting. And then I always loved fly fishing. So I'd have a, right. you know, always have a kind of a standard five weight and a standard eight weight for redfish, you know, 
and uh, and then I wasn't much of a bass fisherman, but you know I was located in the middle of a bunch of bass fishing, so I had a line of it. bass rods. Yeah, so yeah. I probably had half my sails going to bass fishing, half my sails going to shallow water coastal coastal fishing. So the rod company is up and up and going. College is over. Yeah, you're, you're running with this rod company. It's you're in the same vein of your father's family but your dad's in the fishing industry at yep. a distance with his epoxy you you're doing your own thing over here building your own rods it's it's a, it's a success uh, how how many years did you build that so i business? did that for eight years success is maybe a stretch uh it, it had a lot of you know freedom and flexibility and i learned a lot and met a lot of great people went to some trade shows mm-hmm. developed a lot of good relationships in the industry uh, but I could kind of see that, it, I, you know, from the way I was doing it, that I wasn't growing like I wanted to with the company and that it was going to be hard if I ever wanted to, to have a family to, um, to, to, to grow that business enough. And I had an opportunity to sell that rod company. One of my good customers was interested in buying it. And so had opportunity to sell it in... 2005. So I had it, I guess, for about eight years. Yep. And uh, I ended up selling it in September of 2005. And for me, it was a lot of money at the time. It wasn't crazy, but... Um, you're, you're 30 at the time? Uh, let me think. You're, you're about docking 2005, on 30, yeah. something like that. So, uh, that sounds about right. Can I ask you how much you sold your rod company for? Yeah, yes. Uh, it was like $185,000. And so for me... Saving up that money uh, would have been difficult. Yes. And at the time, um, long-term capital gains was only like 15%. So I didn't have to pay many taxes. And, uh, Do you have any debts you needed to pay off? Did not you really. I was always, I was always, uh, I didn't, I, I think I had one, I had a condo that I was living in in Austin. But mm-hmm. anyway, I, I was kind of, I was a pretty low roller. And for me, that, that money was, uh, you know, was enough to to kind of like, hey, I have some money in the bank now after I pay my taxes. Yeah, about reevaluate your life. Yeah, and so what, so basically, you I you know the you know that was mid September that we closed on that deal that it funded. My buddy had already gone out to some public land and where he has a cabin in southern Colorado to elk hunt. So I met, I drove at, as soon as it you know it closed. Once I the drove, check once the check cleared. Yeah, I I got <laughs> jumped in my own truck. Normally we ride together. Met him out there. We elk hunted that year and on public land with bows. And is this when you killed your first elk? No, I think I'd killed one a couple of years before that, but I think he killed a nice six by six that year. Cool. And uh, <clears throat> and so anyway, I just hunted the rest of that fall. I went to Illinois on a whitetail bow hunt with some uh, with a cousin and some friends, and then you know hunted South Texas. And so you're you're young. You uh, that's a big payday for most all of us even today uh and you kind of got the opportunity to step back enjoy your life for a minute and kind of evaluate what yeah, you want to do next not rush into anything i hunted 21 days for a whitetail on the texas panhandle straight for a specific deer yeah yes it turned out it was and let's see that was 2005 so that was a specific deer uh i i saw a big you know kind of wide um you know typical tin with big brow tines had a a kicker off the G2 and back that kind of went back and bent down and it had a it had a drop a big long drop off the other side that split 
and I oh, saw crazy. I saw that deer and I not a lot of drops split. Yeah, that's rare. I saw that deer and I actually ended up missing the deer the first time I saw it, and uh, just made a dumb calculation on how far he was because I was shooting across the canyon. It looked further than it was, and uh, but just kind of in a panic situation, just shot too high, and uh, then uh, I, I ended up continuing to hunt that deer. Um, and I would see him about every three or four days, but never, there was a property boundary nearby. Never, never where you could kill him. Never where I kill him. I had, you know, maybe another opportunity and I saw him four or five different times. One time he was coming straight for me and all of a sudden he went right up this cliff face on the other property. I'm like, there's no reason for the deer to do that. And a pack of uh, about five coyotes came out of the bottom. No way. And they, they had spooked him up that cliff face. And But it was cool seeing him silhouetted up there. I would have liked to get that deer. I never did hear if anybody killed him. I mean, he was big enough where he, I would He slipped away. He slipped away. And, and then 2006, I spent quite a bit of time hunting him also. Mm-hmm. The year we started Yeti. And uh, um, never did see him again. So, anyway. Some of them get away. All right. So, you've... you've You've built and sold your first company. Um, yep. You're enjoying life and hunting. And you've got two brothers I who do. are both super cool guys who I've hunted with uh, here in Texas. Or not here in Texas. I'm not in Texas right now. In Texas. Um, but your brother, Roy, tell me what he was doing at the time. So he, he got out of school about four or five years after me from Texas Tech. And he... he was wanting to do his own thing too. You know, he had obviously seen my dad. You guys are his, very entrepreneurial guys. Yeah. And so anyway, he, um, he started out with selling this, uh, shooting bench, this collapse, this foldable, you know, portable shooting bench that didn't get anywhere. Then he started rigging out aluminum boats. He was getting these holes built to his specs in Florida, bringing them to Texas and rigging them out for shallow coastal fishing like we like to do for the trout and redfish on in the shallow water of Texas. Okay. And uh, so he started building boats and, you know, he, we were, we'd always have two coolers on the boat and we'd put two igloos on there and we were just tearing up those coolers almost every trip, mm-hmm. you know breaking off hinges and and latches and stuff like that and caving in the lids. And so in 2002, while I was doing Waterloo rods, I had seen a a kind of a heavy-duty cooler in Florida mm-hmm. that had just started getting imported into the US. It was and um so I called Roy and said, "Hey, you need to start putting these on his boats, on your boats." And uh because it, they looked heavy-duty. Is he churching up this boat like a package deal? Yeah, well, you could kind of customize it how I you see. want to. He would he would send the specs of what he wanted for the hull. You were like, I don't care how what it looks like. This you needed a hard, uh, more well, hardcore. We knew, everybody cooler. knew we needed a better cooler. Yeah, there was the, just, just a glaring the, the, void. Yeah, the, the, it was the coolers had been the the cost had been engineered, or the you know. Basically, the engineering of the coolers had been all about saving money and the, mm-hmm. the value of the cooler or the, it, it was just about the, who could build the cheapest cooler at the time. You okay. Know? And so there was just nothing, nothing. It was a bargain, like, line of manufacturing. It was how that's right. we do this the cheapest yeah, way. That's right. And and so anyway, when I saw this heavy-duty cooler, I said, Roy, you need to start putting these on on your boats. And then kind of a light bulb went off for him and, and it's like, well, if I'm looking for cool, I'm not making much money building boats and it's a lot of work. Like I bet other people are looking for Yeah. And so he, 
he quickly became a distributor for that cooler company. Mm -hmm. Then he quickly took over the U.S. distribution on that company. And from so he he was busy with coolers from probably 2003 to 2000, you know, six, you know, selling these coolers. And is he selling, he's selling nationwide. He was. But he was based in Texas as well. Based in Texas. We had, he had a warehouse and, and I could see him. So like, he's your older brother, right? No, I'm the oldest. You he's, are the he's, oldest. He's my youngest brother. How did I mix that up? Yeah, no big deal. Um, anyway, so. That was a dig on Roy. That's right. Anything, yeah. That's right. I'm glad he's not here. <laughs> and so, anyway, he, um, <clears throat> basically, I could see he was working hard and kind of a little bit stressed out with the workload. And, you know, come January of 2006, I was you know, I'd hunted from since I sold my rod company. Deer season's over, yeah. And I had no idea what I was going to do after that. And so I called up Roy and asked if I could come help out in the warehouse. Yeah. He said, "Come on down." And so uh, we, I started helping out in the warehouse. And what were you doing? Uh, oh, shipping out coolers, unloading trucks. And you're shipping you're out fulfilling coolers. orders and yeah. unloading. I said, trucks "Hey, and... will you let me come?" Uh, work with you in the warehouse, pay me $10 an hour. He said, come on down. <laughs> yeah. So, You're like, I'm looking for something to do, man. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and, and so anyway, not long after that, he was like, okay, the, these coolers that he was selling at the time were ma- manufactured in Thailand. And so we not, you know, kind of early 2006, we decided, well, hell, we're going to fly over to Thailand and straight. There was a lot of design issues with this cooler uh, manufacturing problems, some frustrations. Oh yeah, we weren't getting enough of them. That's and there, right. There was, you know, over the last, over the last four years leading up to that, he kind of had learned what was wrong with those coolers. They were still better than anything we had at the time, but there was a way to improve them. And so we get over to, we we book a trip, and it kind of helps that he has his big brother with him to to. So had either of you been to Asia? No, and and so. And it was an eye-opening experience for us, for sure. This is, yeah, this is kind of a pivotal moment. Yeah, that and is. So you guys, you guys are like, man, there is a market here. Mm-hmm. There is an improvement that can be made. Yep. And and there's, there's an opportunity for us here. An opportunity to make money, and that we had never seen anything quite like the the cooler business for making money. And so, the two Texas boys quietly go off to asia to what was the goal the goal was to uh improve the design of the cooler which by this time roy who who is good at that kind of stuff had figured out some ways to um manufacture the cooler that would improve it maybe we should back up a little bit you're going to asia with the intent of if we can find a manufacturer to work with us and listen to us of these improvements, we're going to start our own thing. That was not what we originally went to Asia for. So so the original thing was we went over there. To, we had we knew we could make money selling these coolers, um, and we just wanted to, to straighten out some of the problems that we had with the coolers and straighten out the uh, ability to get more of them, okay? With the... With the current the current brand company you guys are yeah. working for, okay, uh-huh. and so that we were distributing, or that Roy was distributing coolers for. So we just wanted to straighten things out because things, although we were doing well, yeah, although Roy was doing well. Um, it just there was a lot of room for improvement and a lot of room to, 
you know, to get them to understand what we were doing in the U.S. with these coolers and, yeah. and you know, improve on design, improve on, uh, on you know, the number of coolers we were getting from Thailand. And we get over there and we have all these ideas, or Roy has most of the ideas because mm-hmm. he'd been dealing with them for the last four years. And they just didn't listen to anything we had to say. We ran into a brick wall, and we were like, "Shit, what are we going to do now?" Are you talking to product designers? We, we, we were and talking the to a middleman from Australia, uh-huh. and he was just not motivated to improve. And we knew we needed to improve the the product quality and and the manufacturing process and everything. He wasn't motivated, and so we're looking at each other. Um, what are we going to do now? And Roy said, you know, this guy in the Philippines has, re- he reached out to me, um, you know, a couple months ago. He, he said, you may see me as a competitor, but I, I own some manufacturing facility over here in the Philippines. And I'm in the cooler, you know, I manufacture some coolers for the Australian market already. I see what you're doing in the U.S. with the, the coolers that you're currently selling. And I'd like to, you know, have the opportunity to, to show you what I can do. And so Roy got that email several months before our trip to Thailand, and he didn't pay any attention to it because we, we had our hands full. That's right, know? yeah. And But once we run into a brick wall in Thailand, we're like, you know what? Maybe this guy will listen to yeah, us. Yeah, so we booked a trip to Thailand. I mean, sorry, to, the, to Manila, Philippines. And we'd never met this guy before. His name was Ivan. Ivan. Yeah. Never met him before. And, you know, you're flying in over there. And the, the ticket was expensive. It was only a three-hour flight. You know, we'd spent, you know, 24 hours traveling, getting over to the Philip. I mean, over to Thailand. And it's only a three-hour flight over, Jump to, the over to the Philippines. Yeah. yeah. But it's expensive. And then you're you're signing something. You know, it's big red letters, death to drug traffickers. And and. And two guys coming over from Texas, it was it was kind of intimidating. Wait, what is this? What yeah, is when you when you land in the Philippines, they 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 warn you that if you have drugs, you know, it says if you're bringing drugs in or out of the Philippines, they're gonna they're th- gonna kill you or yeah, put you in prison forever. That's right. And so it, it was it was just so far outside of anything that we had grown up with. Obviously. Pretty like shocking stuff yeah. for you guys. And you know, so Ivan and his wife uh, Gloria picked it picked us up and in Manila, and it was crazy just getting to um to the manufacturing facility i even had the wrong license plate on because they controlled the uh traffic in manila uh by if you had an even or odd license plate right. we had the wrong license plate <laughs> so they had these 18 year old kids with machine guns trying to stop us going down the road well we get out of there and and so just kind of just crazy massive stuff. culture shock it is for sure and you're like we're just trying to make a, yeah. a better cooler here so anyway the interesting thing we got over he had a super clean factory and he had a basic design that that roy started modifying right away based on what he had learned and and ivan unlike thailand the factory over in thailand ivan was listening and willing to work with roy's ideas because roy knew the u.s market yes and uh, and just knew how to design stuff you know still does yep and so anyway ivan listened to us and so after three or four days i forget how long we were over there maybe closer to a week um we flew out of manila um to head back to catch our plane from thailand back home to texas and when we were leaving Manila, we were like, uh, we were like, hey, uh, we're starting our own company. Let's jump ship. Let's do this ourselves. Yeah. And so. That was the moment. That was the moment. Leaving so, Asia. 
leaving Asia. Roy was super excited. We got out a piece of paper, wrote down 10 names to This is one of my favorite parts yeah. of the story, yeah. And so we had we we quickly came up with 10 cooler company names, you know. On the flight Yet, home. On the flight home, Yeti was one of them. What was it? Do you remember any others? Not really. You know, the turns out no one did. Yeah, that's right. And so we we got home, showed our friends and family these names. We're starting our own company, and some people liked Yeti, some people didn't. But they, you know, we came back to them. Everybody remembered. Uh, everybody remembered the name Yeti, and it was kind of you know. The so you share a list of of potential uh, brand names with yeah. friends and family. And you hit them up a couple of days later, and you're like, "Hey, what'd you think? Yeah. What, which one did you like the most?" And, yeah. And, and the, the major the the answer was, "Man, I don't even remember most of them, but wasn't yeah. Yeti on yeah. there?" And so, uh, you know, something we'd grown up with was, you know, Sage fly rods. It was a short, you know, four letter word. It looked good on a hat. Yeah. And and so Yeti was easy to remember. Four letters. It looked good on a hat. And it, that, and it, it had, had it kind of had some meaning being the Bigfoot of the Himalayas. Cold, ice yeah. monster, cold, tough, harsh environments. Yeah. And and it was easy for everybody to remember. So we just ran with it. That and, was it. Yeah. And that's how we, that that was, we, we ordered our first, you know, container from the Philippines. How big is your first order? Oh, it was there. They were at the time, a container load of coolers cost us about. Um, you know, probably thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars. Okay. And well, let's back up a little yep. bit. So you're stateside. Yep. You have a manu you have an Asian manufacturer. You've decided you're going to work with. Mm -hmm. You got a, a name you like. Both of you are on board. We're going rogue. We're starting our own our mm -hmm. own company. We're doing this. We can do it better. We're all in. Uh, what kind of startup capital did so you have? So Roy already, you know you know, already had a business going with his distribution from the Thailand company. So he already had a lot of contacts and he was able to fund his growth through his sales. Mm -hmm. But I had, after paying taxes and a few other things, uh, I had, you know, $100,000. Right. And so that was my capital into the company to buy these new containers for, full of coolers mm -hmm. from um, the Philippines and from Ivan. And so that that was my contribution to end up owning. You're like, I can fund the first per the first three containers. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so that ended up getting me 49.5 percent of Yeti, which was a pretty damn good investment. <laughs> I'd say, I'd say that that's worked. And, and then out okay. you know, Roy had a kid or two by this time, so he had already started a family. Um, I was single and could hit the road, and I I had a lot of these relationships through my rod company of people I'd met. So Roy was back taking care of business at the office and designing and dreaming about. And working with Ivan. Yeah, working with Ivan daily, okay? And I was able to hit the road, load up a, my dad's van and head to these trade shows or, or ship coolers. And, you know, basically I would go to show up at a trade show if I ship 25 coolers in. I would just stack them up and make a big backdrop of coolers and put up a Yeti banner, and yeah, and then at the end of the show profound, I would yeah, yeah at the end of the show miss. I would sell all these coolers for cash and uh, and walk out of the show and I didn't have to break down a booth or anything I would just get out of there and catch my flight home. You know? But you also had a stack of purchase orders. Oh yeah. So that was the goal of the trade show. Yeah, that was the goal was to make connections. Some trade shows were different than others, but the shows I liked the best were the buying group shows right. and. 
you know, we would go to these uh, NBS and Sports Inc. shows that these, uh, you know, independently owned sporting goods stores would would go to. And it was kind of their way of, of you offered discounts for these good independently owned stores to buy your product. And it kind of gave them buying power like a Cabela's or a Bass Pro Shop or an Academy, something like that. And so these guys came twice a year to these shows and wrote orders and so i walking out of those shows i was fired up because i was all i had to do i knew if i could convince them to write their first order yeah i knew the product would sell it, the hard thing was just to convince them to try it you knew you had a home run product i did and and the reason i knew that is because anytime we'd got them in a retailer they'd sold like crazy you know there was just there was a void in the in the market for the for a better cooler and these independently owned places you know that they couldn't sell all the customers that walked into their shops used coolers right but they had no way to make money off them so all of a sudden we gave them a way to make money off of coolers i see yeah. You yeah, you kind of include them in on it and give yeah. them a, a chance to make some money on their cooler sales. Mm-hmm. So giving incentives to uh it was, to your it was dealers. Just, Are you selling any of them direct? Or was it a full retail model from uh, the no, so we would always sell coolers direct also. Do um, you have a website in two thousand seven? Is that a know, thing? I, I I bet we did. I, I have trouble remembering everything, but surely we did, you know. And <sighs> I can't even like remember e commerce yeah. of two thousand seven. Yeah, I think by that time we had a website and um and you know, we didn't have a lot of retailers. We had you know, but there were there were places where, you know, Yeti had not caught on yet. And so, you know, if a retail if someone you know, reached out to us through email or a phone call we were going to send sell them a cooler at retail, right? And uh, and you know direct, we, you mean direct, yeah. yeah. And we were we were going to throw in a Yeti hat, and we're and it it just really spread like crazy, word of mouth. You in know? that in that uh, kind of creative marketing initiative of throwing in a free hat and yep. making that making the brand a, a lifestyle or a, a household name. Sure, you think you got a lot of that inspiration from Sage. Um, I think that the inspiration came from just wanting to create a brand that people talked about. And the Sage deal was more about the size of the, of the, the, you know, like the four letters on a hat. That's where we got that inspiration from. It, but uh, sim- simple and simple memorable. And, and it wasn't our name. That's another thing. We knew that this, I always, I saw companies that use people's names in the company and it, it seemed like a limiting factor. You, know? you didn't want, yeah, you never wanted to make cedar, cedars coolers. No. Yeah. And, and so, cause if you ever, you know, as, as you move on or grow up or whatever, everybody wants to talk to, you know, the, the person's sure. name that's on, and on the brand. It separated you from it. Yes. And that was important to us. All right. Let me ask you a couple questions. Okay. So it's the, this is still, we're still in year one. You guys are are doing this you successfully manufactured this you successfully brought your first containers over roy's in constant improvement with ivan you're manufacturing in the philippines you are at these shows raking in orders um what was your first like big order uh you know at the time you know you would there were there were you know how, how much you it wasn't any one retailer that we were selling to it wasn't like a cabela's was like hey no no like 10 million we, we did not sell to those guys early on you didn't okay no we were we 
and that was an important part of our growing was selling to these independent guys. And we, if, if you sell to the big guys at first, they can, You'll they control never, you. Yeah. Okay. And okay. so they can name their terms. They can, they can beat you up. You're like, uh, they can build this with these. Well, it's not, it's not that they're changing your design. It's just that they, you, you become, you can't ever become uh, dependent or maybe reliant on one customer. And I saw that a lot. Like Academy is a big one in, in, in the, you know, where we grew up in Texas and around those states there. And I would see companies, you know, get tied up with Academy and, um, and they couldn't say no to them. So all of a sudden you build up your workforce and stuff to supply all the coolers that Academy needs or Cabela's needs. And then they, they, they they start name, they own you. And so we built our business, uh, you know, word of mouth and through good independently owned retailers. And so we could say no to people and, that was real important to be able to say no. So let's give me a recap of year Yeti year one. How much uh, gross revenue do you think you brought in? That's a good question. Um, you know, for me, it's a lot bigger than the rod company. But, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know. and You think you're a half million dollar business probably in the first so, year? Probably so, because we already had you know, connections through Roy's. And right. so I would think you guys hit the ground running, hit the ground running. And we were doubling over doubling the company every year after that. And, and you, you start doing that for multiple years and it gets big quick. And it did. It did. Yeah. But a couple interesting, uh, hurdles came out of nowhere for you guys. Sure. So, you know, right as we were, as we were, you know, getting a lot of traction and we were like, holy shit, this company is incredible. It's we call this 2010. It, I bet it was 2008 or nine. So we had been, you know, doing Yeti full time for three, three, four years at the time. And do you guys have, where's your headquarters at this point? Um, it was in between Driftwood where we grew up in Austin in a, in a big warehouse we had. And uh, we had real good uh, deal on that warehouse renting it, and and so you had your had offices in there too. Offices and and you know it was by this time it was me, Roy, and a couple full time you know a couple warehouse guys yep. and you know a few people in the office with us. Mm-hmm. And uh, Yeti was rolling by this point, you know. Yeah, and we are on to something yeah. good here, boys. And Roy was communicating with Ivan every day by email. And How many different before before we go down this avenue okay. of uh crisis and yep. and change. Uh how many products are you manufacturing? We were a one product company, and what was hard, it? hard-sided cooler and rotomolded hard-sided cooler and then we had probably one I, size? No. That's what I'm asking. How yeah, many? so we probably had um you know, six or seven different sizes at this point. Okay. And, um, so we're really rolling. We're feeling good about everything. All our eight, we're one product. Everything's manufactured by, by Ivan in the Philippines. You guys are streamlined and deadly. Yep. And then, um, Roy, um, you know, doesn't hear back from Ivan for a couple of days, which is unlike Ivan, but occasionally he'd go on a trip or something, you know, mm-hmm. but, and Roy gets a hold of, uh, Ivan's wife. Um, and she said, something about Ivan's no longer with us and and you know Roy's like what you know what are you talking where about where is he and so 
Ivan had been, he was leaving the factory and in the, is like some sort of like a Zuzu Trooper, the same vehicle we had ridden around in. Car you sat in. Yeah. And two, two kids pulled up next to him on a motorcycle, unloaded a, a 45 handgun into the side of the car. And we could look it up in the, you know, on the internet over there on the, and they killed Ivan and it was a hit, a hit job, you know, and it was, it, you know, nobody was ever convicted, but, um, but, you know, have an, it was some, it was likely uh, had to do with some competition over in Australia and one, another manufacturer over there. And anyway, uh, it was a, it was a terrible deal. Cause first of all, Ivan was a big part of our success Yeah, and Ivan was super important and he, and dedicated to improving product with Roy's designs. Right. And he was probably about 65 years old, just a great guy. And all of a sudden, we've got about three contain three or four containers on the water. We're like, we may, ne- you know, just when things are getting rolling, we may. You're inside Golden Manufacturer and yeah. the and f- is, is murdered in cold blood. That's right. And that was kind of a, a an eye-opening experience for us also in having all our eggs in one basket. Okay? Yeah. So we immediately look into manufacturing in the U.S. and diversifying our manufacturing. The factory shut down for several months. and Ivan's factory. Ivan's factory. And there was kind of a, a power struggle over there with who was going to take it over, his wife or his brother. Okay. And I didn't know who I w- wanted to, to win out on that one. Did you know the brother? I had met him. Okay. But I'd spent a lot more time with the wife. And we had asked Ivan since he was 65, hey, if something happens to you. What's up? Yeah. What's going to happen? And he had built out an incredible team there. And he always told us that, it, you know, that Gloria, his wife, would be able to take over. And so she ended up through the court system getting the factory back open and, and you know, like Ivan would have wanted. You guys have to be terrified. Oh. I it, mean, obviously it, this is a terrible situation, but you have to, you have to be uh, assuming you are no longer going to be able to manufacture. That's right. And, and it was. And this is going to be the death of Yeti. Yeah, that's right. And one thing we learned out of this, which is was kind of crazy, was, you know, hey, the the water spigot of coolers is turned off. Every all of our investment, everything we've worked for, is on these coolers that are on the way over. Mm-hmm. We're going to raise the prices because this may be the last coolers we ever sell. This is our last go. Yeah, and and we so we kind of prepared the few people in the office say, hey, we're raising prices and. We uh, we're gonna get some phone calls that but pissed we might, off retailers. But we might never make yeah, another cooler that's again. Right. And like, so we, we don't, don't have know. a choice. We just need to make the most money we can off of this, right? You know these last you know, um, you know thousands. You, was that cool. factory uh, exclusively working for you guys, or was it by making... this time it was okay? So it was, um, it was a Yeti factory owned and operated by Ivan. That's right. Ivan gets murdered through the court system. Uh, how long did it take for Gloria? You no, know, I the think several months. Open? I kind of lo- lost track of okay. time, you know. But I think several months, and it got going again. Uh, but anyway, back to my quick story on pricing. Yes, we raised our price, prepared for all the you know pissed off people calling that yeah. we raised our price, and we did not get one phone call, one complaint, and it kind of showed us the power of a brand that that. The, People the, want this stuff. Yeah, and that the pricing was, uh, you know, kind of an attribute of the product that, and that, it, and 
it was just unbelievable how we raise our pricing and nobody, nobody complained. said anything. No. And so, and, and as a matter of fact, sales continued to increase. That has to make you even more distraught though with the lack of manufacturing. Yeah. So, so, but we were working hard. To, like it's, to, it's to, even better than we thought it was and we yeah. don't have a manufacturer. That's right. But, but we were working hard to start us on a us factory okay which we did and in the meantime the philippine factory starts back up with ivan's wife and so now we're diversified and now we're stronger than ever and, and so gloria comes she comes, comes through to the comes yeah and, and i, I would I, I don't know that i would have ever believed it but she did an incredible job getting wow. the factory going again and i even had a really good team there that was able to get going again yeah it was a sad and tragic deal because yeah. ivan was a good guy but in the end it made yeti a lot stronger and uh you know and made us more successful um and you know uh, was there a, was there a big lag in uh production then there was yes uh-huh and so but we we got through it and uh you know started shipping containers again from the philippines by this time we're manufacturing the u.s also so now you got two manufacturing that's right and is it fair to say that u.s manufacturing was costing you a lot more it was it but, always but does. we needed that and we needed to diversify absolutely yeah. and the product we were getting out of the philippines was better than what we were getting out of the u.s um you know u.s the labor's more expensive, and uh, but one thing that did do by, you know, you could have a kind of a lower cost mold in the Philippines, and you could throw labor at it to polish it up and make it look good. Well, you don't have that labor force in the U.S., so mm -hmm. you have to have a more expensive mold. And so then ah. we buy these, you know, m these ex super expensive Italian-made molds okay. so we can build in the U.S. without a bunch of labor. Okay. And so then we start, you know, we build in the U.S. with those molds, and then all of a sudden we, we buy more of those Italian-made molds and ship it over to the Philippines. You're like, see what you boys can do with yeah. this. And it was unbelievable. Now, yeah. you're, now you're making, uh, like, sports cars. That's right. And so, anyway, um, uh, you know, Yeti continued to grow like crazy, and then we were getting – Plenty big by 2000, let me think about this, 2010. What, what were some of the biggest growing pains at that point? It was just it was just trying to act quickly on everything and get product out the door and get enough product. That's always when, when you have a successful, a, a successful company with a product that is selling quickly, that's always seems to be the biggest problem is we need more of it. We need more of it now. And... The neat thing about Yeti was because of the the profit built in, we could support our own growth, and we were and we Roll were doubling every year. To it. But but we, we you know Roy and I were low rollers. We weren't taking any money out of it. All of a sudden, we had created this a lot of value inside the company, and yeah. Roy and I had no wealth outside the company. We were real low rollers. I was living for $500 a month with a buddy of mine in his house. Oh my God. Roy was living for free in, in one of my parents' houses. And we had created this valuable company, but we had no money outside of Yeti. So we start, it's getting so big in 2010, we start thinking about selling the company. Mm -hmm. And and I didn't want to sell it unless you never had to work again, neither did Roy. And How big is the company at this point? I if I when you start entertaining the idea of like maybe we should sell this thing, it is so valuable, and it yeah. would be nice to 
to cash in? I, I bet we were our sales were about thirty million dollars a year. Thirty million dollars a year at that time. Okay. Two thousand ten, eleven. You know. Yep. So we went through a sales process uh, and ended up. We didn't know if we were going to sell the whole thing or a minority share or majority share. We didn't know, but you're all entertaining I, the idea and the conversations. Though. Yes, and and it was a fun time to be involved with Yeti, and we ended up selling. In 2012, summer 2012, a majority share of the company to a private equity company. Uh, and they came in and helped us build out more of our team. And they were really involved. And they were, they were there coming down, you know, once a month at least. And, and we hit it off with them. And we're still buddies with them to this day. One of the reasons because Yeti continued to do well. Um, Two questions. Yeah. You said it was a really fun time to be involved with Yeti, yep. um, what what made it so fun? Was it just that it was just it was a great size? We had a success, great size, a great team. A lot, a lot like the first thirty five people we hired were all buddies and friends, yeah. and, and stuff like that. Nobody was a spec, you know. Like when you hire a CFO, they didn't have a CFO background; they had a finance background from <laughs> a from an getting an MBA degree. Yeah, but everybody we hired was just we we knew they were capable. They were athletes. They could do any we, – we knew them well enough to know if we put them in this position, they could do it. Yeah. And then it's kind of different when – They were private, athletes. That's a, that's a metaphor. Yeah, that's right. Like these are, these were workers. These are hard Hard working. workers that were smart and capable and could figure it out. And so you, people you could trust. Yeah, that's right. And so when when our private equity company came in, we started having to, to hire specialists. And, Never, you, and so you the next day, I didn't care if I got fired. You're like, I'm, yeah. I'm good. So, But we reinvested in the company – Roy and I each own uh, 10% of the new company, mm-hmm. and uh, we had some options and stock options, stuff like that. But, you know, the, had I walked in the next day and the private equity company fire me, whatever, I didn't care. Yeah. You know, I knew <laughs> that I'd never have to work again. And uh, I what, could concentrate I mean, that's on a, That is an accomplishment that very, very few people will achieve. That's, a, that's an incredible it was moment. It was absolutely crazy. And, uh, just, it has to be an element of like disbelief to it. Like I, it was, and that's, that, that was kind of the fun thing to be involved in and stuff like that. And so anyway, um, outsiders start coming in, you mean with, with the, the acquisition, uh, oh, yeah. you're saying and, that, and, and we're, we're hiring specialists, which didn't feel good at first, but it was probably the right thing to do. Right. And then, you know, the company is continuing to do well, 2012, 13, 14, and it's then... It's still just rocket ship. Yes, and we could not build enough coolers to keep up. Do you, are you still manufacturing in the States and... Yes. Okay. Yeah. And by this time, we might have opened up a third manufacturer. Okay. I don't even okay. know. But okay. we, I think we had two in the U.S. by this time. And um, um, <clears throat> Roy, I had... I had I had received as a gift a vacuum-insulated bottle, which had been around forever. I used it, and I was like, this thing's unbelievable. I throw it on Roy's desk and say, hey, check this thing out. A month later, he has a 20-ounce cup and a 30-ounce cup designed. Okay. And, uh, Off of this idea. You yeah, and we had the doing. brand, and we had the distribution, and we had the crazy you know, following. And so we present this at, at one of the – you know, a board meeting, board meeting that, <laughs> Hey, we want to start building these, these cups. And 
that you know it was it was viewed as like a distraction. We can't build enough coolers. Why are we going to look at these thirty dollar cups? Is this uh, two years in? This is two thousand fifteen, I think. Okay, so, so you're three, you're three or four years into the partnership. It's been going great. It's going great. Yeah, and, but but and they they and Roy say we want to. Yeah, Roy's like Roy Roy and this other guy are presenting this in the meeting, and we want to make these cups. Yeah, and they're like, hey. I mean, how many of these cups you think you can build? In we got year? a good thing going. Let's not yeah, get well, distracted. Yeah, well, we we need to we need to continue to build enough hard sided coolers. And what what do you think this can do? What do you think you could sell in a year of this? And so people went around the table. Everybody had to answer. What some, were some of the guesses? Oh, five million dollars a year. At the time, we're selling one hundred fifty million dollars worth of coolers a year. So this is a one product company selling one hundred fifty million. And so. Best so, case scenario, these people think this is going to be just a, a distract. distraction. Yeah, and so one of the guys said, "I think you sell five million. You know, I think you sell ten million dollars a year." They get around to Roy and DJ, and Roy and DJ <laughs> stuck their neck out and said, "I think we can sell twenty-nine million dollars of cups next year." <laughs> and they said, "Well, if you think you can do that, let's give it a try." We ended up selling a hundred and fifty million dollars worth of cups in the first year. This is the birth of yeah. what product? Of the Yeti Rambler, <laughs> and and so we doubled the size of the company overnight with cups. That's unbelievable. It was crazy. In its first year, the Yeti Rambler was equal to your your yeah, cooler sales. That's right. Wow. And so uh, after that. Uh, you know, pretty much anything Roy wanted to bring up product. They idea. didn't question this they guy. They didn't question, yeah. And also about this time, I I decided, uh, well, hey, this reinvestment in Yeti that we had right. is starting to get valuable. You're 10%. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, you know, hey, what I used to not care about, all of a sudden I care about it now. Yeah, you thought, you thought uh, I the did, big win was that, that acquisition right. in 2010. Yeah. And so, um, all of a sudden, all I care about my reinvestment, mm. and uh, is I start seeing. I mean, this could be. I mean, this could be big. This could be even way bigger. Ma- way bigger than what we sold yeah. the my majority shares for yeah. back 2010. And so, anyway, uh, we eventually, um, you know, we we looked at going public. Probably, I don't know, in 2016, we ended up going public. In 2018, I believe, and um, I remember the day. Yeah, and so it was fun. We went up to New York, got to ring the bell. To oh, the New did York you? Stock Exchange, and and they, I mean, they really. So tell me some. Tell me a little bit about uh, going public. What so, is... so you know, uh, that was your you know private equity companies are looking for a way to exit after you know five to seven years, whatever, whenever the right time is. They want to cash in. Yeah, they have to. They're they obligated to. to to cash in to their to their LPs to their investors. That's right. And so, but the 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 difference is is none of these you know middle market companies they they don't they typically don't go public. And so, uh, but Yeti had just continued to grow like crazy, and so that was an option, and. And it was a fun, another fun time to be around Yeti, although I wasn't nearly as involved by this time. I, I always kind of felt like Yeti outgrew me after 2012. I was still an employee, still involved. But What, but, what were some of your job titles? Well, Roy wanted me to pick a job title early on. He was CEO, so I, I said, well, shit, I'm president, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I was mainly in the early days involved in sales and marketing, mm-hmm. okay, and and, you know, 
the people we hired were a big part of our success. We hired the right people or the right team. And, you know, Roy always pushed for that. And, uh, and, and, you know, our, our, the people we hired and the people we partnered with the manufacturing, the private equity guys, everything, we picked the right people and we made fast decisions. And, and that's why Yeti was able to grow so fast and be yeah. So successful. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and so, uh, you know, by, by this time I've really, I really slowed down a lot in Yeti. Uh, I had started a family and that was taking up more of my time. And I was just, I felt like Yeti had kind of outgrown me, grow, growed me a little yeah, bit. Outgrew, outgrew you. Outgrew me. Sorry. There you go. And, uh, and so I was really, you know, um, wanting to concentrate on other things like, you know, by this time Roy and I had bought a, a, a hunting ranch in South Texas and. Right. And, you know, we had employees down there and I was more passionate about that kind of stuff. At you were the, ready uh, to step away a bit. Yeah. And it, it was time, you know, yeah, I for worked, sure. you know, I had a great time. All the people I worked with at Yeti and, and had a great time seeing the growth. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, it was time to do something different and I wanted to focus on where my other passion was, you know, hunting and fishing, you know, where, where it had always been. When Yeti went public, did you still own 10% of it? Yes. And since it's gone public, you've had opportunities to, to cash in on some of your, yes. on some of your shares. Yes. And so whenever I wanted to, after when there was, you know, every quarter you, they would announce earnings and I had the opportunity, there was like a, you know, one or two week window. I can't remember where I could sell if I wanted to. But and only so much, right? That's, well, you weren't really... Let me think. You might have been limited based on your pro rata share at the time, but eventually it opens up where you can buy and sell as you want to during during um, your open windows. Yeah. And I have sold Yeti stock, and when I think it, you know, when when I think it's undervalued, I bought Yeti stock back. You have okay. Yeah. And so uh, anyway, um, I'm a, still a big believer in the Yeti company, and I, I like it. What was your last day at Yeti like? Well, I never had a last. Never day. had a last. I'm, day. I'm still an employee. You are. Yeah, I um, and I still have a Yeti email address, and I don't go into the office anymore, hardly at, at all. That kind of stopped with COVID. I would go in every afternoon. Okay. But when they shut down the office at COVID, you know, when COVID hit, mm-hmm. um, you know, I by this time I had built a new house and I was busy with that, you know, working on, you know, you know, getting things going in that house and. And, um, yeah, you redirected a lot of your intensity and focus onto your passions, your family, uh, your home, your ranches, your hunting, uh, which is just such an incredible opportunity that you really have made the most of. Yeah. And I still, you know, get emails about Yeti all the time that I'll, you know, I kind of know how to quarterback them and get the emails forward to the right person. And, That's right. Yeah. And, uh, and I still enjoy that, but, um, you know, and I still be in, enjoy being a part of Yeti, even though, uh, you know, I don't see as many of my friends up there as I used to, you know, so, and it's yeah. changes. That's one thing about Yeti. You could never get too attached or used to anything because it was constantly changing. Mm-hmm. Every month was like a year. That's how fast it was growing. All of a sudden, how fast you walk into your own company, you're like, I don't know anybody here. Yeah, it, it was crazy, and uh, you know, the 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 rate at which we were hiring people was just it, you couldn't keep up with it. Eventually, you know. So the state of the company today, uh, Yeti is a publicly traded company. Yeah. Still based 
Still based out of Austin. In Austin, Texas. Your product line has wildly diversified. You guys are still a cooler company. That's, That's your right. backbone. Yep. And, and a cup and, and uh, you know, the Ramblers and the coolers, I would it was safe to say that's still the backbone. Oh yeah, I would think so. But there are some neat products, you know. You know, during that time we developed a, a soft-sided cooler. Uh, you know, all you know, lots of different products um, that are have been successful, not on the level of the of the hard coolers and the uh, and the drinkware. Right. But some some really successful product lines that that are useful that I use all the time. You know, so. Yeah, it's it's an unbelievable story of two brothers following their gut and seeing an opportunity and capitalizing on it and making a couple very pivotal and correct decisions at the right time, I think. That's right. And so there's definitely some luck in it, but we put ourselves in the right position. We started a company yeah. and we had no idea how big the market was for these coolers. But it outgrew hunting and fishing and spilled over into all different kinds of end markets. It's a, it's a household brand. Yeah. It was a, a, cra- so a crazy thing to be involved in and growing up in the fish and tackle industry and to, to look back and see what we created with Yeti, just wanting to be in the fishing tackle industry, yeah. fishing or hunting, just you know, would blow anybody. And out. seeing a soccer mom with a, yeah. with a rambler and yeah. a soft-sided cooler. Yeah. And, and a, nothing and to a do chair. with fishing. Yeah, and a chair. Right. And a dog bed and yeah. a dog bowl. And it's just incredible how far it's gone. Yeah. All right. I'll close with just a couple final questions I have okay. for you. Uh, I didn't have this on my list, but I will ask you. What do you think Ivan would think today? Uh, I mean, I think he'd be proud of us, you know. Uh, and... I think he'd be proud of uh, what Gloria and Argel was his son-in-law there, um, what they were able to keep going. And I think they've done well, too. They've grown with us. And, and yeah. They, and so, yeah, I would like to think I, we liked Ivan. Ivan liked us. I'm, you know, I wish he could have seen more of that of success. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's a, you know, kind of a tragic deal. But, but I think he'd look down and, and be proud of everybody that was involved, of how we handled everything. You know? I think he would be, too. Yeah. I think he would be, too. And uh, what what do you think was some of the the big, correct decisions you made along the way? I'll, I'll tell you a few that I think you made. Yep. One was knowing your market. Yep. Uh, seeing an opportunity in the void of the product that you guys decided to manufacture. Um the brand the branding of it obviously was such a key part of it yep like that's a great yeah, it's a nice cooler that's great but you guys turned it into i don't know if i want to call it a cult following but maybe that's the best description of it that is and and you know we were way out ahead of everybody else we were way you know before anybody decided to really copy us uh we had already kind of rocketed take taken off now there were success successful you know, copycats or whatever you want right, to call them. Right. But we got a big head start and we had the brand name and that brand name is super important. And Hey, there wasn't any one decision that, that, um, that put us over the top. It was what it really was, was making a lot of decisions on a daily basis and hope that, you know, do your best to make sure that most of them are right. But we acted fast and we were making hundreds of decisions a day 
and we didn't question them and just move forward. Own your decision. It's almost yeah. like a military uh, atmosphere. It it was qu- making quick decisions and 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 just hoping most of them are right. Live with yeah, you're gonna live with those decisions. Roll with it and keep keep on to the next one. Yeah. My last question for you will be what what would be us your single if you could give a young entrepreneur a single piece of advice yep. whether it's that kid we bought lemonade from today or somebody's trying to start up an outdoor brand today what would be your I mean, single piece of advice I don't know if I have a single piece of advice but my my advice would be just to stay after it and try you know it's easy to go get a job and and look for that security mm-hmm. but uh, it's hard to hit a home run when you're working for somebody else. Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. Stay after it. Work hard. And, you know, Roy and I from an early age knew we wanted to work for ourselves. I've never done a resume in my entire life. Roy has never done a resume. <laughs> and, and, and so, and we. What's LinkedIn? <laughs> yeah. We, we had never worked for anybody else until we sold a majority share in Yeti. Right. And that's why I didn't care. I didn't trust anybody else. Uh, I I'd never worked for anybody. And, and so, you know, it, it was just like, we were trying to do our own thing. And I think that taking risk and trying to do your own thing would be the best thing I could advise a, a young person to do. And Hey, when you're young and you don't have anything to lose, yeah, that's the time to do it. That's the easiest. That's the best yeah. time to do it. And, uh, and, and so the, the older you get, the more, complicated life gets i mean i would try it at any time but it's it's easiest to to do it while you're young and uh and when you when when losing doesn't have any serious consequences because we roy and i both had failures in several different companies that we started rods boats shooting tables you know shooting benches all kinds of stuff you got the most you got the most to gain when you got nothing to lose that's right and so uh and we worked hard and and uh, you know, I, I have to give a lot of credit to Roy and his vision that he had the entire time. And, and then you look back past that and give a lot of credit to my dad for exposing us yeah. to to the small family run business that he had, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So. Well, such an incredible story. And I mean, that's we scratched the surface on it, but I appreciate you you sharing all this with us. Yeah. And uh, you guys, you and Roy are such a great example and motivation for someone like me. And uh, lucky to call you guys my friends and hunting partner. Good. And I appreciate all your help over the years. We're going to get after it. And I yep. can't wait to see your big stone shoot this fall. Sounds good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. Next time we're talking deer. Okay. See you guys.